just want to move these stands over here. I was told that there are some sinners on this side of the congregation too. You know who you are. Robin and I have been here in the church almost two years. And uh, through some of the classes or growth groups, we've gotten to know quite a few of you, but there's still a lot of you that really I only know face to face. So I wanted to take just a minute to tell you a little bit about my background before we go on. My only concern being is you hear things about me, you may decide there's nothing worth listening to. I retired from a police department in California, in San Francisco Bay Area, just a few years ago. But with the current everybody having a video on them, it seems every two or three days, YouTube shows another video of a cop doing stupid things. Why do you want to hear one of them? And then before that, I spent 15 years teaching English. And I know for a lot of you, that was not a favorite subject. I mean, you remember how boring those classes were in lectures, and you wonder, what could be worse than having an English teacher talking about the Bible? But then, I have to tell you that before I taught English, I spent some time at a Christian college teaching Greek and some New Testament. And if there's anything worse than having an English teacher teach about the Bible, it is a Greek teacher teaching about the Bible. He's going to do those words, the Greek words, and the history of the words, and I'm falling asleep already. And you hear this stuff about me, and I think you're ready, just, you're ready to turn off and think you can doze. And what I want you to remember, though, is when I left the police department, you don't know whether or not I kept the taser. <laughs> I see you start to nod off. Okay. I'm kidding about my background, but actually the idea that you may decide to check out and think you can doze is something that may be there. It may have hit for some of you when the scripture was being read. It's like you start hearing the Sermon on the Mount and maybe the most preached upon passage in the church and you go, I've heard it, I've heard it. There's nothing new for me here. I might as well just turn off, blank out and doze for a little while. And a couple things. I, I hope, number one, I hope there's something new for you here. I hope there's something new. And number two, don't forget about the taser. Okay. <laughs> See, that's our, pro our problem is we know this passage. We know what it's about. We've heard it preached. We've heard it taught. We've got it down. We know it, right? That meaning, that knowledge has moved on into our general cultural background. I mean, we all know it. I, I came across a headline in a newspaper Good Samaritans help elderly driver who crashes into church, or cr <laughs> crashes into a ditch. Sorry. Oh, well. It's about helping people on the road, right? We know that. There's that Good Samaritan Club, right? Started from a bunch of recreation vehicle people who was designed to help each other out on the road. Even a number of years ago, the Southern Baptists came out with a Good Samaritan kit. 
and you paid your money and you got this box and it had road flares and jumper cables and stuff so you could stop and help people along the road. I mean, we know what this passage is about, right? It's about, you know, as we're, as we're moving along, we help people out, especially when they're traveling on the road. We know this. But what? What if, just what if we're wrong? What if the focus of this passage is not about what we do? It's not primarily about going and helping people. It's not about acting like a Christian when we're out there. What if we've been wrong? What if Norman Perrin is right when he says that the history of the interpretations of the parables has been the history of their domestication? He says we take these passages that have a very radical kind of meaning and can confront us, and we reduce that meaning. We make them easy to live with. Because these passages, sometimes these parables have very confronting messages, and they're hard for us to be a Christian and see that message and not feel our hypocrisy. And so we diminish and we reduce and smooth down that language. We domesticate it so it's easy to live with. We've done that with all kinds of biblical literature. We do it with literature even for our kids. I was at a a Christian workshop quite a number of years ago, And there was a table by one of the major publishing companies. And I picked up some of their children's curriculum. It was the third and fourth grade material. And I looked over and I saw the lesson that they were doing a lesson on John 6. And I wanted to look at that. And it it was the feeding of the multitude in John 6. And And you look at this lesson and the lesson starts focusing in on, they're wondering, where could we buy food? How much money would it cost to buy food for all this group? And they find there's a little boy who's got a few loaves and a couple of fish. And the whole lesson moves in on how it's good to share. You should share. You have this magnificent passage about Jesus and a revelation of what God is doing to him. And it's pointing us down below to him be the bread from heaven, one who gives life to the world. And we make it that it's good for you to share. That is sometimes our tendency to moralize and make rules and laws about things diminish the power of the gospel. And the question will be is, have we done that here with this passage? Have we allowed our tendency to moralize and, and come down to ethics and rules and what you should and shouldn't do to diminish some of the power that is in this passage? Is there a possibility that we have this one wrong? If we're wrong, if we've been wrong, it's because we have not asked the right question. If you want to get to the right answers, you've got to ask the right question. And the question is if we've been doing that. The way this uh, parable is usually interpreted The key question is, who is my neighbor? Because that's when Jesus tells a parable, right? The lawyer asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the parable. So it makes sense. It's just logical. It's natural to say the parable then is answering that question. And if that's the question we're looking at, then yeah, 
It's about helping people. Whoever is around us is our neighbor. Whoever needs our help, even if you have to cross racial and religious, ethnic kind of boundaries. That's what it would be. But I want you to look closer for a second at that lawyer. The lawyer starts off by asking Jesus a question. He says he stood up and trying to test Jesus, trying to lay a trap for him, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you notice Jesus, knowing it's a trap, just turns it around. He says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So the lawyer has to answer back. Well, you love the Lord your God with all your, whole, with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus, good, do that. And it says, then the lawyer seeking to justify himself asked, who is my neighbor? None of his questions were really sincere questions, were they? One is to trap Jesus and one is to justify himself and his own behavior. Let me ask you, what do you know about what Jesus does when people set a trap for him to test him? to try to catch him in something they condemn him of, or when they try to justify him themselves. It's kind of a technical phrase, but he just messes with their minds. He just messes with them. And very often, what he uses to mess with their minds is a parable. It's not a little story, a fable with a moral at the end. The parable... One definition I've, I've picked up is, is from a writer, I can't remember the name. The parable is a verbal weapon in a spiritual war. Jesus is in a battle and he uses parables to turn things around, to twist them, to get a whole new view of what is going on, to present things from his side. And actually that's what Jesus is doing here. First, when the lawyer asked him first question about what's, what do I do to eternal life? Jesus twists it on him by saying, well, how do you read scripture? He puts him in that spot. And then he says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a parable. But at the end of the parable, Jesus asks his question, the question the parable is leading up to. And that question is, who became neighbor, who acted as neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Those are two different questions. Even look at the way neighbor is used. The question, they're different. The lawyer is saying, who is my neighbor? Neighbor is out there, someone I might possibly be expected to help. And Jesus, and Jesus, who became neighbor among the men who fell among robbers, now neighbor is the one who's doing the helping. See, the lawyer's question is more about setting limits. How far is the expectation we go? How much claim does God have on my life? There've got to be limits to how far I go with this. Is it national or racial or ethnic? Where are the limits? And Jesus' question looks at the motivations, the action, and it's turning to the character of the one who is doing the care. They're very different questions. So Jesus' question turns us back into a different reading of this parable. Now we see the reason for like three characters that come down the road. You've got the guy in the ditch and there are three coming. There's kind of a, 
Maybe it's a universal thing where we, we use three because there's two to set a pattern and one to break it. And I don't know if that crosses uh, border lines of countries, but it seems to be a, a little bit of a universal thing. We do it from kids thing on the three little pigs. We do it in jokes. A rabbi, you already know, a Roman Catholic priest, and a Southern Baptist pastor go into a bar. You know it's a joke because that's how we set them up. You also know it's a joke because this other Baptist pastor is not going to go into a bar. Okay, But you know what's going to happen. Two are going to do one thing and somebody else is going to do the other that makes him the hero or the goat in that thing. And that's what we get here. We get three highlighted to highlight what's going on. And the language is very par parallel as we move through. And the first one comes and seeing... Say, more literally, seeing him, he passed by on the other side. Number two, seeing, he passed by on the other side. Seeing, he had compassion. And everything else that happens in the parable flows out of the compassion. Going to the man, binding up his wounds, pouring the oil and wine on, putting him on the horse, taking him to the inn, providing for his care. It all flows from the compassion. And in fact, one of the things that happens in parable interpretation is often the key point is where is something that happens that determines the end, that changes the course and controls the movement, and there it is. It is the compassion that happens, and that changes and controls the rest of the flow and the ending of the parable. See, we've got two very different questions. The question of a lawyer, who is my neighbor, is saying, who, who is in and who is out? How far do I have to go? Where are the limits? Can we put a limit on God's claim on how far this love has to go? And that's the wrong question. Jesus' question is moving to the character, the motivation, and the heart of the one and looking basically at what does it take within us to become the kind of person that is able to fulfill what God desires. See, there's the right question. What does it mean to be neighbor? How do we become neighbor? And that's Jesus' question, and I think it's the right one. If Jesus' question is right, then the whole issue here in this parable comes down to the issue of how we live with regards to our neighbor, with how we live with regard to other, has to do with compassionate seeing. It is having a heart of mercy, of kindness, of care, and functioning out of that, seeing other people with compassion. I'm telling you, it takes all the self-control I have not to go into the history of the words and the background and the imagery of this word, splachnizomai, because it's fun to say anyway, um, about to be moved with compassion. This word that seems to speak of the deepest kind of feeling that drives one to enter in and reach out and minister to the pain in someone else's life. Maybe better to get at that meaning is to say that, as I understand it, this word, to be moved with compassion, is the deepest spiritual, emotional response 
that we see in Jesus that always drives him to reach into another life for some sort of healing. How many times do we see Jesus and moved with compassion? He reaches out and touches. Moved with compassion, he heals. He cleanses. He feeds. It's no accident that Jesus puts as the key factor in his parable seeing with compassion here because it's what Jesus does. Jesus is taking who he is and holding that up for us as a model of what we're called to be and do. And it's no accident either than that Jesus, we find this word at the key point of three key parables of Jesus. And one of them, one of them is this one. And the other one I'd point to you right now would be the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the son is lost, he's gone, he's coming back, rehearsing his lines to try to work this out so he can get, you know, work his way back in. And text says, and while he was a far way off, the father saw and was moved with compassion. And as far as that younger brother part of that parable, everything about his being restored and brought back in flows from the compassion of the father. And it's very clear in this context that Jesus is portraying our Heavenly Father. It is His compassion involved in saving the lost. And in fact, that's another parable that's in the midst of a battle. A battle is going on spiritually, and Jesus uses a parable again to reshape and reframe everything. He's being accused at the beginning of chapter 15 for receiving and eating with tax collectors and sinners. And it's something to condemn him for. He's defiling himself. He's insulting God's holiness. He's insulting God's righteousness. And Jesus tells those three parables. And the, the prodigal son is the last one to say, no, 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 what you have to see is in what he is doing in his receiving the lost. It is the compassion of the Father at work. And that's how you have to see what he's doing. What Jesus does with the parable of the Good Samaritan is not just give us laws and rules and stuff. Jesus puts in the character of the one who does the help, his own character, and what he teaches about what the Father is like. And fundamentally to say that what we are called to do then, how we are called to live, is to live out of that compassion for other people. Sadly, tragically, we have that ability in us to block that flow of compassion. We have that egotism, that self-centeredness, a tendency that to, to sinfully focus on ourselves and block that compassion. They did an experiment on this a number of years ago at Princeton uh, Seminary. They wanted to see something about this parable of the Good Samaritan. And so they took a bunch of seminary students, those who were training for ministry, church work, and they brought them up to a room together, and they were going to be the subjects of this experiment. And they told them they're all going to be sent one by one over to another building to, uh, to do a little talk. A little talk, and it's important for their evaluation and their records, how they do on this, to put a little pressure on them, right? Then they broke them in half, and they're in two different rooms, and one half is told 
you're going to be doing a talk on jobs available at the seminary. And they've all been in seminary. They know what those jobs are. And the other half, they told, you're going to be doing a talk on the Good Samaritan. Now, unbeknownst to the students, they're going to be sent out one by one with a little map across through a couple of buildings to another building where they're going to do their talk. But what they don't know is there's an actor near the doorway. Entrance of that, the actor is writhing in pain. And the issue is, who's going to stop? And will, be, will there be a difference between those who are going to talk about jobs who stop to offer help or is it going to be those who are speaking about the Good Samaritan who stop to help? There was no difference between the two groups. They didn't find any difference. But there was one other factor where they found a difference. Something I didn't tell you about. As the students left one by one with their map, one-third of each group were told, you, have, you can go, you've got plenty of time, take your time, you're going to be there early, and you'll, uh, you can, uh, you'll be able to wait and be ready for when this happens. They told another one-third of each group, you need to leave now, and if you leave, you'll be on time. And they told another third, you need to really hurry, and you're going to be late. Now what do you think happened? Of those who thought they had plenty of time, they were going to be there early, 60% of those stopped to help the person right there in pain. But of those who thought they were late, 10% stopped. Isn't that about right? Isn't that who we are? That we may reach out when we feel we're free in time, but as we start focusing on what's important to us and the pressure and we're time crunch, and we're running late, and this is our schedule, and this is what we got to do because it's important for our career, our future, we lose that ability or we lose the willingness to see out and the needs that are around us, and we can ignore. We have that ability in us to just block off that flow of compassion. Our failure speaks of our need for transformation. We've got to be changed. We've got to be different. We've got to be transformed. That is, we recognize God's call in our life, but if we look at ourselves, we realize we don't have the resources in ourselves to make that happen. And was, if you look at the parable, it doesn't say anything about transformation. But the big picture is when we see that the demand, the call that is there, that we are to function with regard to others with the same motivation and heart that Jesus does in his ministry or the Father does in her accepting us, we simply recognize that we fail. We do not have it. That we need to be made new. We need to be empowered so we can live out of newness or that simply is not going to happen. Again, our parable does not speak about that transformation. It doesn't speak about how it happens, but we know that's the reality if we're going to be obedient. It helps us also see this. It's not about doing something, about a list of things we're supposed to do. It's about becoming 
who it is God is wanting to make us into. Our passage doesn't say anything about transformation. So I'm off the hook for (laughs) telling you how that happens. Um, Fortunately, our regular sermon in Romans, we're we're speedily moving along to chapter 12, and we get to chapter 12, verse 2. There's going to be transformation, and Gary and Lewis are going to teach you about transformation. And I don't have to. But maybe one hint. Maybe one hint at the context of Jesus is the one who teaches in parables. Jesus here. We ha- I said that this word, to be moved with compassion, happens at the center point of three parables. One of them is the prodigal son, which speaks of God's compassion to welcome and receive the lost. And then we have the good Samaritan that speaks about our seeing with that same kind of compassion. And it's interesting that the third parable that deals with compassion sits right in the middle. It is in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you remember that one about that servant who owes the king an unpayable debt, impossible to pay. And it says the king had compassion on him and forgive him. And that parable turns into tragedy because that servant who received the compassion did not show it. What's clear in that, compa- that parable is when one receives compassion, it should function as a transforming power so that we then treat other people with that kind of compassion. We have really a theology of compassion in those three parables. And I want you to think sometime about devotionally spending one after another going through those. Prodigal son, Luke 15, God's compassion that is shown to us. Matthew 18, the idea that compassion should transform us, that we cannot really receive. If we have really received and let compassion work in us, we can't be the same. We can't treat people without, can't treat people without compassion. And our parable to Good Samaritan, the call that we would see our world with that compassion. But the rest we'll leave to Gary and Lewis, okay? <clears throat> well, one other hint. Maybe in the context of Luke, and be careful, I might be reading too much into this. I might be putting something there that shouldn't be there, so you watch carefully, okay? You would think Luke, Luke has got, he knows tens and dozens of stories about Jesus that he's not included and about the disciples. Maybe he knows hundreds of things Jesus did and the disciples did, and he has to decide what to put in his gospel. And you'd expect when he starts talking about seeing with compassion and moving out of compassion, you would expect that after a story like the Good Samaritan, he'd start showing Jesus going out and doing compassionate stuff or sending his disciples out to be compassionate. But what do you find? You find the parable of the Good Samaritan and then what is jammed up right next to it? The story of Martha and Mary. And Jesus does not commend the one who is busy serving people, but the one who is sitting at the feet of Jesus, who is hearing, who is present with him. And maybe not a mistake either, but then what follows as you move into chapter 11 in Luke is the teaching on prayer. Jesus teaching about prayer. Okay. 
It doesn't say it right here, but I wonder, is there a reason these two get butted up right together? Do we see in this that there is a double movement in the Christian spiritual life? There is the movement of compassionate seeing, but there is also then that movement of quiet sitting at the feet of Jesus. Should we understand that the way we start, to, the way we are able actually to go out and do the compassionate seeing is by the sitting and being with? Is it by being with Jesus, hearing from him, and time and prayer that we start being changed and we start taking on his character? And that is what then allows us to move forward and function as those who go out into the world and see with compassion. Maybe I'm reading too much in here, but it's clear in here. We've got to be transformed. And when we start living out of this compassion, we start to experience the kingdom of God in a bigger way. That kingdom, that rule of God, the, the act of ruling power of God that we look forward to at the end that is already breaking in here, we start experiencing that in a real way, or a more real way. That is, when we start functioning with that kind of compassion, just as surely as that Samaritan's compassion broke down that seemingly impenetrable wall between Samaritan and Jew, we start seeing the walls around us crumble. The values of our culture, the values of our world, start being shattered, and we start experiencing kingdom values as we live with compassion. When I taught at the Christian College, um, California, a number of churches helped support that college. They supported the mission. And so sometimes when the pastor was gone on vacation or they were in between pastors, they asked a professor to go out and speak at a church and fill in. And I was asked one time to go up to this church in Fruitvale Avenue in Oakland. Um, and so there was a Sunday I was supposed to go there. Their pastor was going to be out of town. You guys don't know Fruitvale Avenue in Oakland. Um, it's not prime real estate. It's not a place I would have taken my wife and kids to just hang out. It had a reputation a bit. I've been by the freeway and saw the exit, but I'd never gotten off there. So one Sunday morning, I'm driving up there. I'm supposed to meet a representative of the church who is there. And uh, he'd meet me, and I'm there early, meet him. He's a black man, probably 28 to 30 years old. He's working on his Ph.D. in urban planning at University of California in Berkeley. He's a sharp guy. He wanted to be involved in working with the city, improving what's there. It was cool. But as an urban planner and, and a doctoral student in that city there, he knew the city. He knew the makeup. And he said, let me tell you about what we have here. He says, so you know what you're going to get. This is a black congregation. It's basically black, but you're going to see eight to ten old white women spotted here in the congregation. He says, because originally, this was an Italian neighborhood. Whole area is an Italian neighborhood, but as some of the jobs started moving, some of these Italian families started moving out too. 
And with the makeup of Oakland, a number of black families started moving into that neighborhood. It was a lower income area. They could buy houses there, and they were. And what, and what happened then is what tragically happens, other white people start moving out. You get that flight and moving away. So it became this black community. He said, but these, these 10, 8 or 10 Italian women, they're all widows. They're all on a fixed income. And we know they would have moved if they could, but they didn't have the finances. They didn't have the family who could take them. And so they're incorporated. They're part of our congregation. So that's why you'll see. And it came time for the service, and it was, you know, church about the size that we have in terms of attendance here. And uh, it was what he said. It was a black congregation, a range of ages, but there was a little, little old white woman here and there in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. Anyway, the service starts, and I'm, you know, here behind the pulpit, they've got, they got these curved aisles, curved wooden pews, so everybody can see what's happening here. And I'm here, I just started preaching, I'm a few minutes into the sermon, and those back doors, boom, they fly open. And I look there, and there is a, a woman there that caught my attention for a number of reasons. One, she was not very subtle about her entrance. She was in her late 30s, maybe. She was a large woman. She had wild hair, curly hair, that was flying back behind her, and she had this fierce expression on her face. And the thing that hit me more than anything else is she had a black T-shirt with three letters across the front, KKK. And I'm trying to preach, and she starts walking in. In fact, she starts marching straight toward me. What could be more offensive in a black church than a white woman coming in with a KKK shirt? And so I'm trying to act like I, I'm fine, I'm calm. I'm, I'm trying to continue on with the message while the whole back half of my mind is running through scenarios. What happens? Because she's marching up this aisle toward me. Looks like she's about to t take over the podium. And I'm trying to figure, well, if she does this, I'll do this. If she doesn't, what do, what do I do? Anyway, she comes marching right up there, marching, marching, marching. She stops. She takes two steps over, and she plops down right there. I continue on, like nothing's going on, <clears throat> though the back half of my mind still is going, what if this happens, what's she going to do? Anyway, I get through the sermon, and we get through the prayer, and she doesn't do anything. So it's interesting. So sermon ends, everything's done, service is over, and I start to meet with my host, and we got talking. He said, oh, did you see so-and-so come in? And he pointed to her, and this woman is over in a group of black women who are talking with her. He says, she's a street person. She's homeless, and she is mentally challenged. He said, we know somebody just gave her that shirt or she got it at a garage sale. She doesn't know what it means, and we just love her into the family. And he says, come on, let's go over for lunch. We always have lunch in the fellowship hall. And we go over to this other room. Everybody's in there. And he says, we never do anything fancy. It's small. We just have sandwiches. He points over, and I look over there, and there's some of the women who are in their 30s and 40s making this mountain of sandwiches. I said, I think we have enough. He said, no, no. And they're making more and more. And he says, you see, 
these Italian women are on a short, they're on a small pension. They don't have much money. They often don't have enough food for the week. So we make sure that when they go home, they each have a large bag filled with sandwiches so they, we know they have food for the week. Homeless woman with a KKK shirt coming in, cared for and loved. The white women that they know would have left the neighborhood if they could, and they love them in the community and provide for their needs. Who became neighbor to these women in their need? Those who were filled with the compassion of Jesus, and they showed it in a real way. They showed them the heart of Jesus in their care for them. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you've called us to a task that sometimes seems impossible for us and we don't have it in us. And we need you, Father, to work in our lives, to work in us the kind of compassion that would allow us to show your love, your care to the community, to those around us. Transform us, Father. Let us bear witness to your redeeming love, your compassion, your heart, that was willing to welcome the lost, the hurting, the needy. We pray in Jesus' name.